You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the word of our God together. We turn to the gospel according to John chapter 4. We've been working our way on successive Sundays through these opening chapters of the gospel of John. Come to chapter 4. Direct your attention to the verses 1 to 30, as well as 39 to 42, as both our scripture reading and our text for this morning. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. And I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you 
am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? And leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Let me go down to verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we have four Gospels that chronicle the life and the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why four? We can understand one, perhaps two, but why do we have four Gospels? Isn't that rather overdone? Isn't that rather highly repetitive and unnecessary? And I suppose it would be if these were merely human accounts. However, the truth of the matter is that all of these accounts have been, in one way or another, guided by God, the Holy Spirit. He is the primary author here. And he caused these men named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to write what they did. Yes, and he also ensures that as they do so, they each make their own distinctive contribution relating to what may be called the most unique ministry in all the world. Yes, so that applies to John as well. For John, one of the most important aspects is the fact that Jesus is not just the Savior. Now, it is the fact that he is the Savior of the world. Already in his first chapter, he stresses this when he writes, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And then he adds, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. And later, John records what the other John said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of of the world. And later, John quotes Jesus himself as saying, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Clearly then, John wants to stress that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews. His mission is much larger than that. It has to be seen on a grander scale. He's also the Savior of and for the world. Only, beloved, he doesn't become that kind of a Savior overnight. First, there is work to be done. There's much work to be done in Israel. But there's also work to be done elsewhere. 
elsewhere in Samaria. And so that is now where the Lord Jesus Christ goes in John 4. He goes to Samaria. And let us together consider why he goes there and also take note of what he does there. I preach to you on the scene, the Savior of the world reaches out to the rejected or despised Samaritans. And we're going to see that he demolishes numerous barriers. He corrects false worship and he embraces rejected people. Well, beloved, as our text opens, we are reminded that the spotlight is shifting. Up until now, much of the attention in Israel has been focused on John the Baptist, that strange and enigmatic figure who preaches a stern message of repentance. Hard on the heels of that preaching, there followed a baptism to confirm this repentance. But now Jesus comes, and as he comes preaching and baptizing, we are told that his disciples were baptizing more people than John. Jesus is becoming more and more dominant. And that, says John himself, is as it should be. However, the Pharisees are not so certain. They try to turn this transition into a kind of unholy competition. Only Jesus will have none of it. Instead, when he hears about it, he leaves. He he decides to leave Judea behind and go back to Galilee, back to his hometown area and the real base of his ministry. Yes, and as he decides to do so, he is confronted with a barrier. Indeed, in our text, there are actually five barriers. And the first one is a geographical barrier. How shall he get from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north? And for us, that represents no problem. Why, you find and you take the shortest route possible. However, the shortest route goes through Samaritan territory. And that represents a problem. Upright Orthodox Jews in the days of the Lord Jesus didn't travel through Samaritan territory. They considered it to be the land of the unclean, the defiled, the heretical. It's unfit for any real Jew to pass through that area. And so what do they do? Instead of going straight north, they first went west, they crossed the Jordan River, and then they went north on the other side of the Jordan River, the valley, way up north, and then crossed back over either south of the Sea of Galilee, or in some cases north of the Sea of Galilee. In other words, it was customary to make this huge detour around Samaria. Now, is that what the Lord Jesus does as well? No, not at all. He decides to go straight through Samaria. Indeed, our text even states that he had to go through Samaria. That he's driven by some kind of special holy compulsion. That he has to go this way. That it's part of his task and ministry. 
so he goes. And he breaks through that first geographical barrier. But then as Jesus heads into Samaria, he comes to a town called Sychar, about 50 kilometers north of Jerusalem. And by now he and his disciples are tired. He sees a well and he decides to sit down there. And meanwhile, his disciples go to town to buy food. Now, as he's sitting down, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And you know, that represents a second barrier. In what way? Well, she's a woman. And men are not allowed to simply strike up conversations with strange women. Of course, I realize that we Western people think all of this is kind of strange, if not absurd. Why can't a man talk to a woman? Why can't they converse together? What's the real problem? Now, the problem is a sexual barrier. If any of you have traveled to the Middle East or have gone to Islamic countries, you will have come across this phenomenon. In such places, it is still improper for a man to strike up a conversation with a woman that he doesn't know. And in addition, it's also improper for her to respond to him. And now we need to understand that this whole business was even a lot worse in the days of the Lord Jesus. For that time, the teaching of the Pharisees dominated, of the rabbis... And their writings were full of prohibitions on this score. In these writings, you can read such things as, one should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with somebody else's wife, because of the gossip of men. Or it's forbidden to give a woman any greeting. Or, another rabbinic saying, he that talks much with womankind brings evil on himself. So when the Lord Jesus sees this woman approaching the well, what does he do? Does he, according to the standards of his time, ignore her? Does he pretend not to see her? Does he keep his mouth shut? In other words, does he respect the sexual barrier? No, he does not. He says to the Samaritan woman, will you give me a drink? It may be that she had the means to draw water out of Jacob's well, and perhaps she had a rope and a bucket, and he doesn't have any of that stuff. Or maybe it's that he's simply making a request to her. And for her part, notice she appears to be shocked by his words to her. Only notice carefully that she's shocked not so much because he's ignored the sexual barrier. No, there is another barrier. Another barrier still that is being ignored, a much higher, greater, and more formidable barrier. And it is the ethnic or the racial one. And it comes out clearly in her words to him. 
You're a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John adds an editorial comment saying, for Jews, do not associate with Samaritans. Now what is this? What's the problem now? Well, it's a very old one. If you know your Bible history, then perhaps you know that the Assyrians conquered the tribes, the ten tribes of Israel in 722 B.C. They took most of the people away and they spread them throughout the entire Assyrian Empire. And meanwhile, they took captive people from elsewhere in the empire and plucked them down into the place where the ten tribes used to live. And there the foreigners intermarried with the remaining Jews that were still in the land. And the result was that many pure Jews considered the result to be a mongrel race, a mixed breed a real Heinz 57. They refused to consider them to be Jews any longer in any way, shape, or form. And they labeled them Samaritans after the chief town in their area. And of course, thinking them to be inferior, any proper Jew at that time avoided contact with any of these Samaritans. They're deemed to be an inferior, lower-class people. They're said to make real Jews unclean. And so, by and large, the Jews stayed clear of them. They pretended they didn't exist. They didn't see them. They didn't talk to them. They were an invisible people. But notice, not to the Lord Jesus Christ. He strikes up a conversation with this Samaritan woman, even a religious conversation about water. And it's kind of neat to follow that conversation because really it's it's a conversation that really continues to take place on two levels. He's speaking about living water about spiritual water, about its ability to nourish people even into eternal life. And all the while, she's speaking and thinking about physical water, natural, normal water, water that you have to walk sometimes miles for, draw up, carry back, and drink continually. He says that his water will take care of her thirst once and for all. And she takes it literally and wants to get hold of this special water that will save her so much time and so much energy. But then, beloved, notice as they're talking about water, there suddenly comes a force barrier. And it's not geographical, it's not sexual, it's not racial. No, it's a moral one. Jesus tells her to call her husband. She says, I have no husband. To which she replies, you're right. When you say you have no husband. And then notice he adds, 
The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you are now living with is not your husband. Quite simply, you know, this, this, this woman is the Elizabeth Taylor of the ancient world. She has worked her way through five husbands, and now she's given up on marriage and is just living with number six. Now that still scandalizes today. At least I hope so. But you know, it did so even more then. It would have mortified most of the Jews living in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. This woman has all these strikes against her. And no doubt as well, it probably made her a marked woman in her own village because Samaritans were not exactly a religious. Probably hardly anyone wanted anything to do with this woman. They all avoided her. But not our Lord Jesus Christ. He talks to her. He ignores all of these barriers and he talks to her. You can say he acts towards this woman in a totally unconventional manner. Even some would say in an immoral, improper manner. And why is that? Why does he do so? Well, you can say it has everything to, with, to do with the fact of him being Savior. For how can you really act as a Savior if you are continually catering to human prejudice, to human standards, to human likes and dislikes? How can you save people when so many of them are placed behind barriers and deemed to be beyond redemption? Beloved, our Savior has been sent by the Heavenly Father to be the great barrier breaker. In His day, He takes on all kinds of barriers. And also one of the most prominent ones, the one between Jew and Samaritan, and He begins to break them down. Yes, He breaks them down to make way for the Gospel. He breaks them down so that he can really become what he is meant to be, which is the Savior of the world. And I think that this morning we all need to be supremely thankful. Thankful for the fact that we have such a courageous, audacious, daring Savior. For I would say to you that without his courage, without his grace, love, and mercy, where would we, Gentiles, be today? But then if there are all of these barriers, the question may well be asked, which is now the greatest one? Is it the geographical one? Is it the sexual one? Is it the racial one? Is it the moral one? Well, there is another one. Another one you ask, can there be any more? 
Well, yes, indeed, because look at the verses 19 to 24. It presents us with a fifth barrier, theological or a worship barrier. Notice when Jesus' questions come too close to home, this woman changes the topic. She doesn't want to talk about all of her husbands and the guy she's living with. She shifts gears. And she becomes theological. I would say she's not the only one who tends to do that in this life. She says to him, I can see that you're a prophet. But then she adds, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Talk about deflection, changing the topic. Here suddenly she takes up a very touchy topic. And it has to do with the place of worship. The Samaritans worshipped God in Mount Gerasim and in their own homegrown sanctuary. The Jews worshipped God on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and in the temple of the Lord. And both claimed to be right. They both insisted that this was the only proper, legitimate place to worship. So who is right? And what will Jesus say to this? First, you'll notice he prefaces his remarks. He says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, he is saying that that soon this whole dispute will be a thing of the past. It'll no longer matter at all. And thereafter, he proceeds to correct her and all who think like her. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Notice, our Savior doesn't pussyfoot around here. He doesn't become political. No, he says, you Samaritans, you're just... Wrong. Your worship is based on ignorance. Your insistence on worshiping on Mount Gerasim is wrong. Your adoption of only the first five books of the Bible is wrong. Your homemade priesthood and all of these self-generated sacrifices are wrong. Indeed, they've allowed their hatred of the Jews to pervert their worship. For the fact of the matter is, he says, salvation is from the Jews. And that means it comes by means of Abraham, the other patriarchs, the people of Israel, the sacrifices, the ceremonies of the law. And you Samaritans, you need to recognize this. And in a manner of speaking, you could say, and you could add, we do as well, 
You know, it's not uncommon in Christian circles today for there to be confusion about the Jews and how we are to relate to them. Some go so far as to completely disassociate themselves from the Jews. They have no use for Abraham. They have no use for the Old Testament. They speak demissively of tabernacle and temple, of sacrifice and ceremony. If you listen to these people, you would think that the people of God didn't really appear until the days of the Lord Jesus. And others in the Christian community take the opposite position. They see the nation state of Israel today as the fulfillment of prophecy. They're praying and pushing for the temple to be rebuilt, for the sacrifices to be reconstituted, for the priesthood of Levi to make a comeback. And they're convinced that when the Lord Jesus returns, he will return to the Mount of Olives, and he will take his seat in the temple, and he will reign the world from there. But you know, between those two extremes, there is another position. And it holds that the Old Testament is important. Especially if you want to understand the New Testament. And it holds that the Jews do have a special place in the history of God's redemption. And it acknowledges that they came first. Before any of us Gentiles. And that to them originally belonged the promises and the covenants. In other words, this position will openly confess that salvation is from the Jews. Only it doesn't stop there. For a while, the Jews were God's vehicle of salvation. A new time has dawned. Jesus says, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So what's our Lord saying? He's saying that soon this whole temple dispute won't matter. And what will matter is whether or not you realize that true worship is really fundamentally spiritual worship. As well as worship that has to be filled with truth. In other words, do you believe that God is spirit? And that he can be worshipped anywhere. And do you realize that this worship must be done in the power and person of the Holy Spirit? The Spirit who prays for us, who intercedes for us, who fills us, who assures us. And are you convinced as well that true worship is regulated by the word of the Spirit? And that it has to be done in conformity to his truth? And finally, do you believe that worship in spirit and truth means the worship of Jesus? For it's he who sends the spirit. And it's he who is truth incarnate. And so, beloved, while salvation is from the Jews, Jesus says a new time is coming. And has come. 
time of worship in spirit and in truth. And it's a time that both Jew and Samaritan needs to embrace. Both need to look beyond their temples and their prejudices. Both need to look to Jesus, to his spirit, and to his truth. Yes, and not only do they need to do that, but also we, as well as our children, need to do that too. You parents here this morning, you you children who are baptized here this morning, and all of you children here, we all need to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. We need to do that every day. We need to do so looking to the help of the Spirit of the Lord and being guided constantly, humbly and expectantly by the truth of the Lord. As we find it in Holy Scripture. Every morning it's good to wake up and to remind yourself, I'm a child of God and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not a follower of man. I'm not a follower of human convention. They don't set my agenda. Jesus Christ sets my agenda and determines my behavior. That's what we need to confess and believe and implement. And you know, that's also what a lot of the Samaritans did. After the woman confesses to know that the Messiah is coming, Jesus says very plainly to her, I who speak to you am he. I'm it, he says. And what does she do with that? Well, she hurries back to the village she comes from and she spreads the word about him. It says in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. It would be nice to be a fly on the wall when she comes back to the village and tells them what she tells them. And you know, if you think of it, isn't this something? Who's the first missionary mentioned in the gospel according to John? I would say to you, it's Elizabeth Taylor from Samaria. You see how mightily the Lord works through her? And how unexpectedly as well? You can be sure she never would have been my first choice. But then what do I know? Obviously, God knows better. And he knows what grace means and how it's meant to work in the lives of his people. But you know, God also does more. For not only does he transform a wayward woman, but he also transforms, we need to understand here, a rejected people. Verse 40 reveals that because of this woman, the Samaritans went to Jesus And they asked him to stay with them, and he did so. Whore of whores, he did so. He stayed with them, and he taught them. 
And the result, because of his words, many more became believers. Notice, there's no mention here of miracles. It doesn't say because of his miracles many believed, or because of the spectacular signs he did many believed. It simply says because of his words. It's all about the words and the wisdom of our Lord. They're alone able to convict and to convince. And they alone change the hearts and the lives of, of a much despised people leading them to say with the woman, and not only to the woman, but also to us today, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves. And we know, we know, this man really is the Savior of the world. Quite simply, Jesus saves. That's their confession. He saves Jews. He saves Samaritans. He saves people from all over the world. And then let it also be added that especially he has a soft spot for despised and rejected people. You know, still today, the gospel makes inroads. And if you look where it makes inroads, you see it so often makes inroads among Low people, the hated people, the no rights people, the untouchables of the world, they come to Jesus. And they find salvation in Him. But as for the arrived and the complacent and the comfortable and the prosperous, they so often dismiss Him. As unnecessary. But the downtrodden, the discriminated, and the despised come to know him, to love him, to serve him, and then to most happily confess this man really is the savior of the world. May that confession, beloved, be also our confession. May it become the confession of these children baptized here this morning. May it be our confession every day. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.